Amen. Be seated, please. And take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 1. While you're turning there, I'll give you my uh, just insight into pastoral ministry. Long-term pastor, uh, there are a handful of sermons that are the most difficult to preach. Uh, for a long-term pastor, preaching on giving obviously is a toughie because a significant portion of what you give goes to feed my family. Uh, weirdly enough, you probably don't think of this, but Christmas sermons are in the list. Um, they're really hard to preach for a long-term pastor because it's the same material that you talk about all the time, which is good. Uh, and another category that's extremely difficult to preach are passages that we know very well. So I chose to double up, <laughs> take what's already a difficult sermon, and make it doubly so by handling John chapter 1, a passage that we're all very familiar with and is absolutely lovely. People of God here, this is your Lord speaking to you in His Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Father, we thank You that You speak to us. We readily admit that we have ears that are slow to listen, minds that are slow to understand, hearts that are slow to believe, and hands that are slow to obey. And we thank You that nothing is impossible with You. So while we are slow, would the Spirit be quick within us 
Would he be pleased to work, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Speak to the young people in the room first, I guess. Many of you young ones have yet to know the great joy of an injury that impacts every bit of your daily life. Many of you young ones in the room are yet to know the great joy of a physical ailment that has consequences in every bit of your daily life, whether it be a back problem that keeps you from being able to get comfortable when you sleep or keeps you from sleeping at all, a hip problem that makes it hard to sit in church, a knee problem that makes you dread every time it rains whatever sort of kind of physical consequence, those that are older in the room begin to understand what those are. And my understanding is that the older you get, the more likely it is for those things to happen even in your sleep. So you wake up and you're like, what new fresh injury is this? What dreadful thing is this? We have these kind of dynamics as humans where our body gets an injury that then defines some fashion, in some fashion, how we live. Something happens to us that then alters every bit of our daily life and existence. Some of those are very predictable, right? You blow your knee out. Well, you don't walk. If it's your right knee, you don't drive. It's incredibly complicated, Some of them are bizarre and weird things, like uh, when I used to play guitar all the time, have calluses on my fingers. You can't use a touchscreen, can't go to the ATM if you're left-handed at all, because it doesn't have enough blood in your fingertips to register on your smartphone, can't dial from your phone, can't text, weird things. But it, it teaches this great lesson of how kind of we bear these kind of burdens, these problems that then definitionally inform how we see the world and how we function within it. Sometimes those problems even kind of include organs or muscles or ligaments or whatever kind of atrophying and don't work very well. Some of you will feel this quite deeply next week when you decide to go to the gym for the first time in 51 weeks and you begin to experience the pain of leg muscles that haven't been used and arm muscles that haven't been used and lungs that haven't been used. As a pastor, though, many of those injuries are the ones that I am concerned about. I visit you in the hospital when I can. We talk, we pray, and we lift you up. Brandon and I pray for you often. The session prays for you with great regularity. But there is one kind of injury that I suspect most in the room probably don't think about that regularly, but kind of pastorally and as a preacher, it's one that I engage with great frequency. And we might be able to, in a silly fashion, call it the Michael Bayification of the Christian experience. For those that know who that is, Michael Bay is a famous director who makes absolutely wretched movies. And by wretched, I don't mean morally depraved. I mean everything explodes constantly all of the time, so it's massive sensory overload. If you watch a movie by Michael Bay, you know that it's going to involve lots of dynamite, lots of fire, lots of noise, lots of kind of just this overwhelming sensory experience to try to make a really bad movie seem more exciting. 
And what's happened really in the last 50 years in our great nation is that all of life has kind of fallen prey to the Michael Bayification of life. Our news media has realized that they make their money off of sensationalized headlines and sensationalized stories, so they take everything to make it as big and as emotional and as serious as possible. Our entertainment industry, again, has realized that we add more explosions, everything's better. We've yet to arrive, I guess, to the kind of consummation of this when you get the romantic comedies that involves explosions everywhere, but we'll see that happen, I'm sure. Our pop music, our commercials, all of American life, really you can begin to kind of view through this filter of a, a, a increased sensory experience to try to get access to our wallets and our pocketbooks. Because the more that we can stimulate you, the more likely you are to spend money on our product. You see, that's the injury that I deal with with great regularity, one that you probably aren't thinking about that regularly. You don't think about it often in your life that you live in a world that is constantly taking this sensory experience and turning it up to 11 so that everything is just overwhelmingly stimulating constantly. But as with many injuries, you pick up the injury that then has consequences for daily life every day after it. And one of the side consequences, and this is the one that I interact with with great regularity, is that when we're overstimulated in our culture, we lose the ability to process glory well. When you think about it, Think about your Christian experience for those that are older in the room, last 50 years particularly. And think about how much we as a culture, we as a Christian body have lost the ability to observe, to engage, and to appreciate glory. I mean, some of us in the room right now are going like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Fair enough. You're proving my point. This sermon's for you. (laughs) It's one of those weird sermons. The more lost you are at the beginning, the more important it is for you at the end. And it's intriguing, again, how this season of life, and even in our culture, it makes it so easy to be able to appreciate glory. I mean, you think about when you were a little one, the littlest ones, how you could hop in the car and just drive through neighborhoods and be overwhelmed at the ability of people to take the lights that are supposed to be inside and move them outside, and it's shocking how wonderful that is. Or to take the trees that are supposed to be outside and to move them inside and put things on them, and how shocking that is. And to be overwhelmed with a sense of awe. Do you remember that? When you were a kid being able to drive through the neighborhood and see the house, the crazy house that has all of the lights and to just be overwhelmed with a sense of awe and how bright it is and how wonderful it is. 
And if we were to go back decades in our nation or centuries in our nation, we would think about how easy it was for children to be overwhelmed and in a sense of all with presence and the beautiful wrapping. And now our affluence has increased to the point that it's so difficult to achieve any sense of glory in spending time with our family, any sense of glory in opening presents, any sense of glory in observing lights, any sense of glory at all. And I suspect the fact that those muscles have kind of atrophied in our hearts makes passages like this and the Bible as a whole in some situations very, very difficult for us to enjoy or engage because we've got the wrong set of muscles. We've not worked out the right ones. Our task today in the sermon bit less structured than normal, bit more disorganized. It's Christmas. Go big or go home, right? I'm going to try something a bit different. An endeavor to look at just a handful of the themes in John chapter 1 that are designed to show us the glory of God. Now, different authors in the Bible, they write in different ways. Paul is extremely logical. He's extremely measured, but sometimes he gets so excited that he interrupts himself, which kind of makes it difficult. John, if we knew him today, we might say would probably be the most artistic person in the room. Lots of his writings, when we interact with them, the commentaries and commentators say, there's no structure at all. The dude just sat down and started talking. Got too excited and just kind of talks in circles. It's all over the place. First John is a great example of that. But the way you read him is to read him kind of through the lens of an artist where you see themes And John loves to use themes. Two of his most famous you get to see right here in this passage where he's dealing with the idea of glory, but using oftentimes light and dark as those illustrations. What he intends for us to have in a passage like this, now this is my illustration, not his, so don't blame him for this. But that moment where if you've ever gone to like a movie theater, you go watch a movie at like, you know, one or two in the afternoon in the summer, you know, or even worse yet, you get the summer matinee that starts at 10.30 or 11 in the morning, you know, and you're in there for like three hours as you watch this movie and it's been pitch black and you exit the hallways and it's pitch black and in the old movie theaters, you used to be able to exit through the door in the front and you have this great moment of you leaving a room that is completely pitch black with your eyes fully dilated and you open the door and it's just so blindingly bright outside that you can't see anything for like 10 minutes. Right, you get the little floaters in your eyes, and you're like, ah, oh, I'm going to have a car accident trying to drive home. That's, in essence, I think part of what John is trying to do in John chapter 1. Now, obviously not that illustration specifically, but to present kind of the darkness of the world and to hold in front of us the brightness of the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, first thing that we could kind of look at to appreciate in verses 1 through 5 is that he anchors Christ kind of in the timeline of history and says, you want to marvel at Jesus, you want to think he's glorious, you want to think that he's beautiful, you want to think that he's lovely and that he's wonderful, let's contemplate who he is within the confines of time. So where do we start? In the beginning. Well, actually, you get kind of further down in the phrase and you begin to realize this is actually, it it starts before the beginning. Where John chapter 1 verses 1 through 5 really kind of chronologically begin is they begin before time exists. Remember, time is kind of 
directly connected to and in some fashion the same thing as matter, energy, and space. They're in some sense kind of all variations of the same kind of theme. And so what we're dealing with here is in the beginning of time, in the beginning of space, in the beginning of matter, in the beginning of energy, in the beginning of creation itself, all the things that we know to be true and real, God was and is and will be before time even was and is and is going. Our grammar really can't contain what we're trying to talk about, right? Language breaks down a little bit. God was. In the second person of the Trinity, the Word is and was, and He was God prior to time even existing. And this holy relationship that you get to see in verse 1 with the Trinity being kind of written in elegant and masterful language. He is the Word, and the Word was with God. The second person of the Trinity is not the first person of the Trinity and is not the third person of the Trinity. But the Word is God. He was, He is, He will be. So you have Trinitarian theology written large even prior to the arrival of time. In verse 3, now the timeline begins to coalesce and all things that were made, including time and space and matter and energy, all things were made through Him. I love contemplating that. You need to think about this. It's just wild to think about. That when Mary was feeding her child, that child was the one who made her. And when Mary was losing her temper and yelling at that child, that child was the one who was keeping her heart beating and her brain firing and her voice working and the sound waves even holding together. For that child was the Creator God. That when she was actually giving birth, he was the one preserving her life along the way. That's so bizarre to think about. In fact, John continues with, in English it's a bit clunky, but it's really quite lovely this, with all the negatives and such. Without him was not anything made that was made. <laughs> Nothing that exists was made apart from Jesus. Apart from the second person of the Trinity, the Christ. At this point in time, he's called the Son But if it exists, He made it. He's responsible for creation because He is God and was with God and was such before time even existed. And then inside time. And then into what time will eventually become. And I I can't explain what that's going to be. And then verses 4 and 5, you get John introducing two of the themes that he's going to use to describe Jesus throughout the, the rest of his writings. In him and Christ was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, interestingly, 
Uh, sometimes even you can have this idea of like clouds and darkness being used to describe God's glory because it, it covers over and it's impenetrable and you can't see through. Uh, that's used in Ezekiel and a couple of other places. But interestingly, when John talks, he almost exclusively uses the idea of light being the thing that God covers himself in as proof of his glory. The impenetrable brightness of glory. I love that. To think that the way that God shows himself to be glorious and wonderful We sing it in another hymn, I think it's number 38, uh, inaccessible, hidden, clothed in light. That's like the garment he wears to uh, cover himself and hide himself from us. Such wonder, our eyes cannot penetrate it. You know, some of us, we uh, went out and watched the eclipse a number of years ago, and we're told, like, very clearly, do not stare at the sun. And we got to watch the news media and laugh at the various people that decided they would try to stare at the sun and were surprised when it burnt their eyes out. It's too bright. You can't handle it. It, it, It's too great for our eyes to consume. You, You cannot just walk out and stare at the sun. It will destroy you. Likewise, John's kind of putting this idea in our mind of like the way we think of God's glory is to be thought of in this brightness, but here interestingly anchored on the timeline that even prior to creation, even prior to light existing, Christ did. And then once he made light, he made it in such a way that he would use it to describe his own glory. The glory of God. Verses 1 through 4, it's put within the context of a timeline, pre-creation, and then into and through creation. Verses 6 through 8, the glory of Christ is kind of presented by contrast. One of the great kind of answers that we have in our current cultural moment, if you ask somebody like, well, why are you going to go to heaven when you die, right? We're, we're in the South. Most people say they're going to go to heaven. You ask somebody why they're going to go to heaven when they die, and they say, well, I'm a, I'm a good man. And I'm better than my neighbors. I'm a good person. Verses 6 through 8 actually kind of undo that. Because here you have John, who the Bible describes as the greatest man of all time. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's the one who worships Christ Jesus in the womb. That's pretty, I mean, that as a resume is pretty special, isn't it? He's the greatest man who ever lived. That's what Jesus calls him. And interestingly, what's John's kind of comparative analysis of the best man to ever live? (laughs) There's a man sent from God. Okay, good. His name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. Why? Because he's not the light. He's not the light. In fact, he's not bright enough to hold a candle next to the person and work of Christ Jesus. He's not great enough. He's not grand enough. He's not marvelous enough that the best person you've ever met can't compare to the glory of Jesus. That's why anytime you hear that answer of like, well, I'll go to heaven because I'm a good person. (laughs) They're either a narcissist that has a very high opinion of their own goodness, 
or more likely quite ignorant and have a very low opinion of God's glory. Friends, we can't be good enough to satisfy his glory. Here's the greatest man who ever lived and he's not enough. The glory of Christ. 9 through 13, we get to see this glory written in his mission, in his task. And this is, again, is something that we get to see kind of contrasted in our kind of current cultural moment. People still talk about Jesus in the South, but we love to talk about Jesus solely as the baby because he's not threatening. Babies are are not threatening. They make adorable little noises like our little one is here. What a great noise. Out of the mouth of babes, the Lord has ordained praise. Psalm about that very specifically. But babies are not threatening. They don't, they don't scare us unless we're going to drop them because they're too fragile. They're not going to ruin us. They're not going to conquer us. They're not going to defeat us. They're, they're babies. They're living, breathing human potatoes. There's nothing they're going to do. And it's interesting that in this time of year, we get to see so many people are comfortable interacting with Jesus as that because it's the non-threatening version of Jesus. It's the, the, the version of Jesus that they can think of as being safe and controllable. The version of Jesus that they can think of as really not being their God or their boss. And interestingly, what we have here in John is the contrast to this, this true light, the glory of God, the glorious second person of the Trinity who gives light to all of mankind. This is the one who is stepping inside creation. So we have the uncreated God who brings with him all of the glory of God, stepping inside time, stepping inside space, stepping inside matter, stepping inside energy to work from the inside of creation. This is not one who will be controlled. He cannot be controlled, for he is very God, a very God. I love how kind of the turn of phrase that John uses in verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him but didn't know him. Like, Yeah, he, he stepped inside time and space, but he was the one who made it. He's the one who held it together. It's like if you had a computer programmer who programmed a program and then stepped inside the program to live. It's his own creation that he made and then stepped inside and is supporting and running. But what happens? Here John doesn't stop at the incarnation. He doesn't stop at Christmas. He works his way through the church calendar, even through Easter, (laughs) even to the end. He came inside creation. He stepped inside the world. The world didn't know him, verse 10. Verse 11, he came to his own people. He came to the Jews. And they didn't receive him. They rejected him. And we begin to see there there's a problem in the created order. Sin has entered in. Death has entered in. Darkness has entered in. And we have the combat, the good versus evil of the entirety of creation. We have the problem of sin and people dying. And what will this God do? What will this Word do? What will this Jesus do who stepped inside time and space? Will He be defeated by sin? Will He he be defeated by the devil? Will he even be defeated because he was betrayed by the people who should be ready to love him? 
I mean, you have an entire, you think of the Bible, the first two-thirds of it are preparing people for him to show up. And he had an entire nation that their entire existence was based around the truth that was preparing them for him to show up. And he shows up, and what do they do? They betray him. So is he going to lose? No. Instead of offering it just to his own people, just to the Jews, he instead gives freely this salvation, this victory, this conquering over all the forces of evil. He gives not to a nation state, not to an ethnic group. He gives to those who receive him by faith. Verse 12, who all who did receive him, who believed in his name, received by faith. This is an amazing reality. This is the heart of the Christian message. This is the gospel that Jesus did something wonderful that we could never do. And it cost him everything and it costs us nothing and he gives it freely. We receive it by faith. And what happens Well, he gives salvation, the right to become children of God. Now, this is something that I think probably many of us just kind of take for granted. We brush over this part. We're given the right. That's kind of that legal terminology. We're legally given the privilege of, of belonging to the family of God. And we have access to all of the rights and privileges that birth children would get. Adopted and brought into the family of God and now treated as those that belong there. Which means we have access to the Father's ear. He listens. We have access to the Father's love. He cares for us. We don't think of it this way, but we have access to the family budget. You realize that's part of what your prayer life is supposed to be. It's access to the family budget. When my kids come to me and they're like, hey, I have a thing for school or I have a thing for this, can I have some money? That's, that's the right thing to do. I make the money, I give them money. It's the way it's supposed to be. In some sense, that's what our prayer life is to be. We, we have the privilege of having access to the family budget. We just have to ask our dad, ask the father. And does he get grumpy about it? Like maybe sometimes I might occasionally get grumpy about it. I know y'all never do. You're better parents than me. Does he ever get grumpy about giving generously to his children? Does he get upset and be like, oh, you're spending too much of my money? No, Luke 11 tells us, no, he, he gives generously. And in fact, if you say, hey, I need this much, he's like, well, here, I'll give you something even better. You want this? I'm going to give you this. I mean, it might not look that way to you, but he's still going to give you more. Ephesians 3, more than you could even ask or imagine, he gives more freely. We have all the rights and privileges of belonging to the family of God. How glorious is our God? I mean, to think of salvation in these terms that the one who made the world, the one who sustained the world even as a baby, stepped inside the created order to deal with those who betrayed him, 
so that he could make them his brothers and sisters, so that his father would treat them not as second-class citizens in the home, but that his father would treat them the same way he treats him. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? That the work of Christ is, in essence, it's bringing us into the relationship so that God the Father treats me the way that God the Father treats Jesus Christ Himself. I mean, do I have to wonder if God loves me? (laughs) Does He love Jesus? Yeah. Well, then He loves me. Does He take care of Jesus? Yeah. Well, He's going to take care of me. Does that mean sometimes hard times are going to happen? Well, if I read the Bible, I think Jesus had some hard times. I mean, even going to the cross to die. But did the Lord ever leave him? No, and he will not leave me. You think of salvation as it's an exercise in the glory of God, and it's bringing additional people in to enjoy it. We don't I think probably consider it this way very often, but part of the offer of salvation is an invitation to you to go enjoy what God Himself was enjoying prior to creation. Right? Prior to creation taking place, the three persons of the Trinity enjoyed God Himself. The Father enjoyed the Son. The Son enjoyed the Spirit, the Spirit enjoyed the Son, and the Father. All three persons enjoyed each other all while still being one God. Part of what salvation is is God extending an invitation to you to say, come, be a part of the joy that we were experiencing prior to creation. The knowing and being known of God, the loving and being loved by God, the filling and being filled by God. Be in relationship with the Trinity. Come enjoy the very glory of God. That would be enough. John doesn't stop, though, and neither will I. I'll keep going for a little bit. Verses 14 through 18. John makes it clear here kind of what's been lurking in the background for the previous 13 verses that the person and work of Jesus is a ministry of glory. Verse 14, the Word became flesh. Remember your catechism questions. God does not have a body like man. God is a spirit and does not have a body like man. Here, Christ putting on Flesh putting on all of the entirety of what it means to be fully and truly human and then living among His people. Living among those who have betrayed Him. Living among those who would eventually send Him to the cross. Living living among those who have hated Him. living among those whom He would redeem. So that, what does verse 14 say? Through this we have seen His glory. 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I like how the ESV puts it in parentheses. There's an aside that follows. us. will say, yeah, obviously, this glory is not in the same kind of glory we have. John, the best man ever. And even John was like, this guy is way better than I am. He's better than me because he's greater than me because he was alive before even I was because he made me because he's God. Verse 16, we received the grace of God. Verse 17, we get to see how God has interacted with mankind in the past was uh, to teach us of our need for a Savior. But in Christ Jesus, we have the fullness of the glory and love of God. No one has ever seen God, but Christ has made Him known. Friends, there is a great temptation for us to become creatures of habits, not in the good ways, but in the bad ways. And habits are really important. Habits are a way for us to do things without using our mental energy to make something happen. The problem is when we begin to think of God as a habit in this way. And in doing so, we make him to be in our own heads just a more powerful version of ourselves. And in doing so, we lose all of the sense of glory. And you think, well, that might not be that big of a deal, right? I mean, okay, Pastor Michael, he might be a bit, you know, on this one. Friends, glory is what provokes wonder and what provokes awe and what provokes marveling at something. And honestly, I know there's some of us in the room where we we go to think about our faith. If we're going to kind of stop and do inventory for 2022, we might say, well, you know, my heart, I mean, I love the Lord, but it's grown a little bit cold, or it's become a little bit ordinary, or it's just become a little bit normal. And friends, some of that, I'm, I'm going to contend, it's because your glory processor is broken. You've lost a sense of marvel at who Jesus is and what He's done. The Michael Bayification of our culture has ruined us and even how we read the Scriptures. So what do we do with that? You know, do we take the old John Prine song, turn off your TV, move out to the country, have a lot of kids and eat a lot of peaches, is that what we're doing? Is that, is that how we, we save ourselves? Run away from the culture, turn off everything and engage with it? No, that's not the right answer. No, the right answer is to go back to the Scriptures and to spend the energy and the effort and the work to rebuild those muscles. I mentioned it earlier, I used to play guitar a lot, and I stopped for years, haven't played roughly for a decade, and started playing again so that my son and I can play guitar together. And my fingertips feel like lava. It hurts so bad. And my forearm burns. Now, that's inconvenient being a lefty, because when I go to use a pen, it's not really happy. I'm having to rebuild those muscles that have atrophied 
I'm having to learn to use my pinky again because I haven't used it to do anything for a decade. I'm having to put the hard work in to get my body to do what it's supposed to do. Friends, the same challenge rests for us spiritually. To put the hard work in to rebuild the muscles that have atrophied, to develop a sense of wonder. And some of you are like, well, I I know that's hard work. I don't really want to do that. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. One question hopefully would defeat that. Is he worth it? Realistically, is he worth it? The one who existed prior to creation, the one who is the agent of creation, the one who is greater than any man that has ever lived, the one who has brought salvation to mankind, the one who is the light that has lived with us, the one who has united us with the Father, the one who has shown us the glory of the Trinity. Is he worth it? And if your answer to that is either I don't know, or maybe no, or maybe your answer is, is I, I'm, just, I'm just not convinced, I don't know, or maybe I want it to be, but I'm too weak. Friends, remember that because of Christ, we have this wonderful relationship with the Father where we have access to the family budget. If you lack faith, ask and let Him give it. If you lack desire, ask and let Him get it. If you ask, or if you lack motivation, ask and let Him give it. If you lack the strength, ask and let Him give it. Our task on Christmas Day, but not only on Christmas Day, every day, and particularly every Sunday, <laughs> is to cultivate a sense of wonder at the glory of Jesus. Maybe you spend this week trying to get yourself set for the next year. That 2023 would be an exercise in glory for all of us. Father, we do admit our weakness. It's so hard for us to believe in things we cannot see and cannot understand. And we readily admit that glory is one of those things that we do not see and we struggle to understand. We ask that you would forgive us in Jesus. And even as we've already said, we have access to the family budget. And so we pray, O Father, that you would spend the riches of heaven working in our weakness. That where we lack the motivation, would you give it? Where we lack the faith, would you give it? Where we lack the hope, would you give it? Where we lack the joy, would you give it? And where we lack Christ, would you give him? That we would be your children and live in the glory of God. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.